The place was a carnival. There were golden horses by the gate, leading the bronze chariot of the sun god. There was an Asherah grove of hewn poles, tall and foul. There were altars to Baal, Baal, inside the temple. There were altars to the moon and the sun and the stars, and to the Canaanite pantheon, and to the Assyrian gods, and to Babylonian deities. There were stone huts inside the temple for male cult prostitutes. There were priests of every variety in black robes and veils and tall hats with silver necklaces, amulets, and charms for sale. In the distance, upon the heights of the hills, fires burned and oily smoke went up like snakes uncoiling into the sky. It had been that way a long time. Josiah had never known otherwise. He did now. He waited with his guard, and tears shone on his face. In front of him, the priests of the gods hid their ceremonial daggers. The people assembled. The orders had been clear. Come to the temple, no exceptions. Elders and prophets and women and children, from the greatest to the least, they came. In ordinary times, that would have been terrifying. In Israel, it was not unprecedented for a king to fill a temple and then kill everyone inside it. But Josiah was trusted. Whatever it was, the people would face it. They filled the courtyard and packed the streets. The elders and prophets and priests were in front, the others behind. King Josiah stood in front of the dais. He held out a hand, and Shaphan handed him the law. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel, he called, and waited while criers carried the message downhill. Yahweh our God said to us at Horeb, he read, and the message resounded. Line by line, law by law, he told the people their story. This is who you are, he explained. This is who God is. At last, when the sun was low in the sky... Josiah concluded. The echoes of Moses' song went out into the city. The priests waited. What would Josiah do? You've just listened to a section from a book called The Paradise King, the tragic history and spectacular future of everything, according to Jesus of Nazareth. That section from Josiah about the clearing of the temple has some very obvious parallels to our dear Jesus and his life on this earth. Welcome back to the Wild at Heart podcast here in the week of October 30th. With We are continuing a conversation and a reading, Alan, with Blaine Eldridge, and so if you haven't listened to part one yes. back last week, October 23rd's podcast, please go do that. Or a lot of this, we're moving fast and there's a lot of content. This won't make sense. Um, so this is part two. Going to share with you some more really, really beautiful things. But before we do, let's pause. Let's take a moment. Let's release our day. Let's release our week. Let's release the world and all of its current heartache to God. Just release everything so that your soul can come back out of the chaos and meet with God right here in the podcast this week. Jesus, Jesus, I give everyone and I give everything to you. Everyone. Everything, including all the heartache in the world and in my own life and the lives of the people I love. I, I just re release it. I lay it all down right now. And Jesus, I ask you for you. I ask you to meet me here in this space and in this content, meet me here this week. Meet us all. In the name of Jesus, we pray. 
Amen. Well, Blaine, welcome back. Thanks, Dad. Good to be here again. Looking forward to part two immensely. Alan, good to see you. Thanks. Yeah, good to be here. Excited about today. Yeah. Blaine, I am so excited. Your new book, The Paradise King, comes out in just two weeks on November 15th. Wild. Are you excited? I am excited. It's very surreal. I think one of the big things is, as a writer, it's very exciting. And also, I'm really hopeful for the revelation of Jesus to people yeah. uh, through this book that's the need of every hour and the darker the hour, the greater the need. So to finally have this thing, and you know how it works is you're both writers, you're writing a book and then you begin to see the need for the book in conversation yes. and people say something and you go, man, I wish it was, I wish I was done writing or I wish yes. it was a month from now. And I could actually just hand this to you because- God loves to work that way of bringing the need to the writer. So to be able to finally say, oh man, you are feeling alienated from God or just subdued in your soul or disoriented. I wrote a book to help you directly encounter Jesus. Maybe it will help you. Maybe he will use it to meet you. I hope he does. So that is really exciting. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, so welcome back, everybody. We're we're excited to hear some more reading uh, from Blaine this week. And the Paradise King has the first two thirds of it is the recovery of ancient stories, Old Testament stories, each one in a unique way, foreshadowing Jesus, and then the full sort of momentum of it all leading to the last third of the book, which is Jesus and his story. Uh, we're going to get there next week. We're going to stay in the Old Testament this week and and yeah, just recover worldview and recover history and recover the power of these stories. Um, so let's just jump straight in. I want you to read now. Um, we're going to skip David because he's such a well-known figure. We're going to go to Josiah this week, King Josiah, uh, who has this beautiful, righteous story and also a heartbreaking story, much like the story of Jesus. Um, Read us the prologue, what you call the chorus that comes before the Josiah chapter. Love to. Here is the chorus from David to Josiah. Those are David's last words. Bring his gray head and blood to the grave. They are not good omens. Solomon followed his father's advice. Zion's king of peace was not only that. He was a conspirator. He secured his kingdom in death, even death on the altar of God, where Joab poured out his life's blood. Murder was there from the beginning. Who could fail to see what Solomon became? And yet it was he who built it, the temple. How lovely it was, formed of huge hewn stones, tall as a palace and hard as a fortress. It was Eden. There was cypress on the floor and cedar overhead. Inside, two cherubim covered the altar with outstretched wings There were carved palm trees and flowers opening to the sun and angels and pillars of bronze and pomegranates and silver and gourds and furnishings and stands. It was splendid beyond imagination. Seven years it took to build, and that place was paradise indeed. When it was dedicated, fire came down and God dwelt there. But he could not stay. Solomon took many wives. At night, when their thin fingers traveled his skin, he thought of their gods and how flexible they were, how malleable. Those were spirits that could be bartered with. A king could rule one with a ritual and soothe another with sacrifice. Do ut des, the Romans eventually said, 
I, the mortal, give so that you, the immortal, may give in return. Solomon went after these. Chemosh he brought in. Molech had his altar. Ashtoreth was honored too, and Milcom of the Ammonites. Dread entered the country, and voices of incantation, and darkness blacker than shadows. The kingdom would fall. Solomon was like Pharaoh, and Rehoboam his son was like his father. They took slaves. They punished workers. Eventually, rebellion came. It was Jeroboam who did this. He was thick in the neck and quick with words and strong. At the prophet's word, he rebelled. Israel broke away. Ten tribes, all in the north, and so in the south it was only Judah and little Benjamin. But Jeroboam was no saint, and no good king followed him. He built two golden calves. He fought many wars. He was an idolater, and no king who came afterward could outdo Jeroboam in vice. In the list of the kings, there are twenty remembered. Nadab, Jeroboam's son, and then Baasha, who killed Nadab. Baasha's son, Elah, ruled a little while, and then Zimri stabbed him in the back. Poor Zimri. He was not popular, and when Omri returned from the wars to oppose him, Zimri burned himself alive. That was better than Omri's judgment. Omri was a kingdom builder, a founder of cities, and evil. His co-regent was Ahab, his son. Those men were skilled in the wars. Ahab caused trouble for the Assyrians, and they remembered it long afterward. When Omri finally died, Ahab approached Ethobael, the witch king of Sidon. He sought a wife. For a long time, he had a plan in mind. At last, she came. That was Jezebel, whose memory is evil, whose name is a cultic chant, whose prince we do not name. But Israel was not abandoned, not even in that dark time. Yahweh sent the prophets, and the greatest of these are like a father and son, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah came first, a settler from Gilead. He was brawny, thick in the brow and sunburned. He wore the squint of men who work in the sun and the prophet's hairy mantle. Power attended him. What can we say of Elijah? He walked into palaces and challenged kings. He vanished in a twinkling. He dined with ravens and hid in the north and raised the dead by the power of God. He fought armies of priests and rebuilt the people and saw fire come down on Carmel. At last, he departed and the chariot bore him away. But Elisha, Elisha remained. The robe of inheritance came down on Elisha, and the work went on. Elisha was a farm boy. He drove the ox and plowed the field and broke the sod. He did wonders by the Spirit, more even than Elijah his teacher. The dead he raised, the waters he parted, the sick, well, the sick he sent to be healed. It was by the Spirit he did this. And yet no demon did they command, no unclean spirit did they drive out. That power remained beyond even them. Meanwhile, in Judah, many kings also reigned. In the list of kings, twenty are remembered. Eight of these were noble men, clear in the eye and humble and judicious. They were protectors of widows. They served Yahweh. They were not enough to prevent disaster. The Iron Age was come to the world, and the events of that time were very great. Though Egypt was long since in decline, Assyria was near the height of its power, yielding its mightiest kings, Ashurbanipal II, Shalmanasar III, Tiglath-Pilesar III, Sargon II, Sennacherib, and Esaradan. Babylon also was rising, and so the world would soon see, in terrifying succession, three of the greatest conquerors the world had ever produced, Ashurbanipal of Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and Kurosh, the last king of Anshan. 
these three came like a storm. That storm fell first on Israel. Shalmanasar raised Samaria and led off the ten tribes, and they were lost forever. Later, Assyria came down for Judah. Shalmanasar died. Unrest bloomed after him. At that time, Hezekiah fought off Assyrian rule, but that was unwise. When Sennacherib at last cleaned up the kingdom, he sent his army to punish Judah, though Judah, on Hezekiah's account, was saved. The angel of the Lord delivered them. But then Manasseh came. Manasseh was Hezekiah's son, and he undid all. He was the worst of the Judean kings. He brought in the great evil and sacrificed his own son alive on a burning idol. That was it. Time was up. Babylon would come. Nebuchadnezzar would scatter paradise and even raise the temple. Ill-fated are those who rule a nation doomed to die. Ill-fated, yet noble are some. Okay, so again, friends, the book has like two genres to it. You've got these sweeping historical interludes, like I got to get you from David to Josiah and what happened. And then the, and then the guy dies really micro. It gets down, right, really into the granular uh, stories of, you know, Abraham leading a raid to rescue Lot and Adam all the way back in in the garden and how he named the animals. And we're going to get granular on on the next guy here, Josiah. But you can hear the heartache in what Blaine just read. You can hear, where is the good king? Please, please, God, send the good king, which is the theme, right? We are waiting for the good king. Exactly. Each of these characters is a step forward, toward Jesus, and they operate in two ways. One, they really dial up the ache because you get some truly remarkable characters, these real figures who fail in the end kind of over and over. So at their best, you get the master's portrait of Christ. You know, when you see- David at his best- is an amazing guy. He's unbelievable. David at his worst. Is unbelievable. And in the decline, you get the ache that all people feel. We're far too familiar Mm. with the absence of God, with the absence of a good king. Mm. And also, you get these reminders of what humanity is made for by the ability of some of these figures to put God's original design on display, to remind you what was there on the beginning, which is not quite lost. It keeps popping up Mm. in the story in someone like an Elijah, certainly in someone like Hezekiah, certainly in someone like a Josiah, where you get in these kings a picture of what humanity is for and an arrow pointing at, wouldn't it be amazing? If we could get a reformer who was like that, whose heart was that Mm. pure and ferocious, Mm. but who wouldn't die in the end on the field of battle and prove unable to save the people. It just hurts Mm. not having the paradise king at the center of history. Oh, you can just, you know, come desire of nations. Yes. Right. Come thou desire of nations, which is one of the... Old Testament names for Jesus, the desire of the world. Now, Alan, you pointed something out before we started recording today, that this is Halloween week. Right. Um, And I think it's really appropriate, even just in the course of what he read, G.K. Chesterton once said that in the end, there has only been Christianity and paganism. Everything else was a sideshow. So he takes the entire enlightenment, the age of reason, all of that Mm. stuff, and he just basically says, yeah, that's not that significant in world history. What we really have is is a world like Blaine just described. It is the world of Babylon. It is the world of these ancient, horrific, sorcerer kings, dark and foul spirits, and atrocities. That is the world we inhabit. 
Yes. Not the world of Starbucks. Right. And right. it's helpful for us to be reminded of that and the power that we now have in Jesus, you know, foreshadowing next week's podcast, who has come and delivered his people. So I think there's there's two sections I want Blaine to read from Josiah now, the clearing of the temple and the smashing of the idol. And, and I think that they're good for Halloween week. Let's clear the house, right? Yes. Let's get yes. righteousness back in. I got to say, people are really looking on the bright side of the pagan revival, but I'll say the recovery of the spiritual world apart from the covering of Jesus is not a good thing because the horror of the experience of the spiritual world, apart from the covering of a good God, was a primary motivator for people to give their allegiance to Jesus. And in the worlds I roll in, there's some conversation on, but as atheists become agnostics and as agnostics become spiritualists, isn't that an opportunity because we have a shared vocabulary with which to talk about the world? And I say, yeah, except for every single person— who's going to experience the spiritual world apart from the covering of Jesus. Like, the world is an unruly teenager right now shaking off the covering of Christendom. So even as we pray this week, right, we pray for the covering of Jesus over our lives and over our homes in this Halloween week, and obviously particularly on Halloween. Lots of dark things go down, friends. It's not just cute little kids in rabbit costumes, right? We bring the covering of Jesus— the true paradise king. I want to hear some from Josiah. So um, Josiah becomes king when he's young. Eight years old. Okay. So he's got mentors. He's got to grow up. He's got to learn the ways of the kingdom, but he is a good man. He is. He's such an anomaly in the story. And you get more about him in Chronicles than in Kings. His story is just fascinating where... Manasseh introduces child sacrifice, and it's the introduction of child sacrifice that has Yahweh hit the countdown timer to the destruction of the kingdom. And then Manasseh has a son, Ammon, who is so bad that his own officials conspire against him. We don't know what they are planning, though, because true to history, this is so true to history, they assassinate the king— And the people freak out. Judah almost plunges into a civil war. But eight-year-old Josiah, somehow, the sovereign hand of God in history, becomes king. And he's fascinating. Jedidah is his mom. And her name is a hint because it means beloved. And beloved in ancient Judah is a nickname, is the king's title because David's name was beloved. And then Solomon gets designated by being the beloved. And then there's a certain king who's going to show up, who's going to be called the beloved son. Well, when you have this mom beloved, have this good hearted son, there's some hope in the beginning. He has some really interesting people around him, Hilkiah, Shaphan, Jeremiah. I mean, can you imagine being tutored by the prophet Jeremiah? (laughs) The effect that might have on a... Let's read. Get us into, so he's got to clean the temple out, just like our beloved Jesus is going to clean the temple out. And this foreshadowing scene is just so powerful because of the darkness, because of the creepy, because of what has to be dealt with. Okay, this is from 2 Kings 23, 1 to 9. Josiah shows up at the temple, and this is what happens. The place was a carnival. There were golden horses by the gate, leading the bronze chariot of the sun god. There was an Asherah grove of hewn poles, tall and foul. There were altars to Baal, Baal, inside the temple. There were altars to the moon and the sun and the stars, and to the Canaanite pantheon, and to the Assyrian gods, and to Babylonian deities." There were stone huts inside the temple for male cult prostitutes. There were priests of every variety in black robes and veils and tall hats with silver necklaces, amulets, and charms for sale. 
In the distance, upon the heights of the hills, fires burned, and oily smoke went up like snakes uncoiling into the sky. It had been that way a long time. Josiah had never known otherwise. He did now. He waited with his guard, and tears shone on his face. In front of him, the priests of the gods hid their ceremonial daggers. The people assembled. The orders had been clear. Come to the temple, no exceptions. Elders and prophets and women and children, from the greatest to the least, they came. In ordinary times, that would have been terrifying. In Israel, it was not unprecedented for a king to fill a temple and then kill everyone inside it. But Josiah was trusted. Whatever it was, the people would face it. They filled the courtyard and packed the streets. The elders and prophets and priests were in front, the others behind. King Josiah stood in front of the dais. He held out a hand, and Shaphan handed him the law. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel, he called, and waited while criers carried the message downhill. Yahweh our God said to us at Horeb, he read, and the message resounded. Line by line, law by law, he told the people their story. This is who you are, he explained. This is who God is. At last, when the sun was low in the sky, Josiah concluded. The echoes of Moses' song went out into the city. The priests waited. What would Josiah do? They noticed, not for the first time, that there was a sword on his side and a hammer such as the Babylonians used at his feet. Josiah picked it up. In front of the altar, there was a bronze platform. It had been raised in Solomon's time for royal usage. Kings were anointed upon it. Josiah had taken his turn on the seat. Now he climbed it again. He faced the crowd. Today I take an oath, he called, to follow Yahweh and to keep his commands and statutes and decrees with all of my heart and with all of my soul. This I swear forever. He paused. Who is with me? He said. There was no conspicuous silence. Conviction gripped the crowd. The elders leapt up. In their regional accents, they pledged themselves to the covenant. Then silence returned. One by one, the people noticed the priests. In Hebrew, there is a special word for a rebellious priest. It occurs only a few times. It is kamarim, a word derived from black. It may refer to the expensive and accursed robes they wore. Let us say that it is so. All over the complex, the Kemarim peered out from underneath black hoods, suddenly conspicuous. Josiah watched them. And you? he called. Will you serve Yahweh? There was a magical muttering. One voice, it was hard to say whose, called out, We have a Lord. Very well, Josiah replied. Go to him. The temple erupted. Judah surged uphill. The Kemarim, who murdered children, were engulfed as though by waves. Josiah himself drew a sword. He leapt down from the dais. There were tables all over, stacked with incense and clay gods and other forbidden things. With the hammer, Josiah swept these aside. With the sword, he clove the table. Then he turned over the benches. Out! he called. Out! Out of the house of Yahweh! To his right, the Asherah grove shook. Like a great tree, the main pillar twisted. It swung and fell with a crash. Behind him, Hilkiah and the priests had stormed the inner chambers. They came out with their arms full of vessels and dishes and graven stones and spilled these into the courtyard. Josiah turned to the apartments, to the tents of the prostitutes and of Asherah's witches. These had already fled, but their dwellings remained, and Josiah, together with his guards, slashed the fabric to ribbons. They broke Asherah's looms and unseated the anchor stones. 
Down with Asherah, Josiah hollered. Down with Baal, he spun. Take that, he said, and pointed at the Asherah grove with his sword. To the stream of darkness. It was not enough to clean out his temple. Josiah intended to purify the kingdom. He went with the Asherah grove to the evil brook and burned it there and scattered the ashes on graves. He likewise burned the vessels and idols and threw down the altars that were on the gates of the city. He worked from one end of the city to the other to purify Judah. And then Jeremiah came to him. Yes! Yes, Yes, Lord, do it! Do it again, Jesus! Don't you want that? It's the whole idolatry is not songs, okay? There's a moral grain to the universe. And so he's not cleaning out bad ideas. He is saving the people from death, Mm. from terror, from the presence of rebellious spirits that are horrifying to behold that hate them. This is not an ideological change. This is a prefiguration of salvation. Yes, exactly. Right. I will deliver you from sin. I will deliver you from darkness, right? Colossians 1, for he has rescued us, ransomed actually is the word, us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, Colossians is an epic text on this because it also has the, he made a public spectacle over the powers and authorities triumphing over them in the cross. Yes, yes, yeah. This beautiful, beautiful. So finally, the covenant partner, right? The paradise king has returned for a time in Josiah. We get him in Adam, we get him in David, we get him in Josiah. We're watching these kings go along. We see him in Abraham, right, building each portrait forward. And it's really appropriate, actually, to a a Halloween week podcast to say, clean house, man. No idols, no darkness. Right. So that, because I don't think we'll read this section in particular, God can come. Yeah. They clear the kingdom. And then you get... Maybe the only tender scene in the kingdom books, which is that a Passover is celebrated. And they say that basically it hasn't been celebrated since David's time. Mm. And it's the job of the, at the Passover of the children to ask the question, what night is this? And then the father's reply on this night God passed through Egypt and saved you from the hand of its gods. Yes, yes. And by the way, the Exodus stuff is incredible too, but we don't have time for that. I want you to read one more Josiah piece before we just riff and riff and riff on this. So child sacrifice was reintroduced was introduced into Israel. It was a very common practice throughout um the ancient world, horrific, 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 but not that far from us actually in this age. And there is a gripping scene where Josiah has got to go down into the veil of darkness. It's got to go into the veil of fire. Yeah. The valley of the children of Hinnom terrifying yes to face the thing and this is a bible story it's in 2 kings 23 10 let's have it a steep stone staircase dove into the valley the brush was thick below and the veil was dark trees and raised stones hid the tofeth but the smell of cinders was in the air and a pall Josiah had forbidden the use of the thing, but the people still went there at night and made the blue fire. Josiah's stomach was sour as he descended, and his breathing was shallow. A narrow path ran from the foot of the stairs. Josiah followed it through darkening trees. At last, he saw the idol. 
It was a huge humped stone hung with many horns. Around it, stone bullheads were arranged in a circle. The Topheth stone had a shelf halfway up its side, and that shelf had been fashioned into the likeness of arms. Upon them, a wide bronze dish was placed. Beneath it, there was a fire pit. Though there were no priests in attendance, no musicians to beat the drums, Josiah could hear them. Even his guard shifted uneasily, casting backward glances. Josiah went up to the thing. Asherah's weavings were hung on the trees and strung on lines with images of fire and snakes and strange runes. The Topheth was ghastly. A crack crossed the stone, long and winding, like a toothy grin. No one moved. Josiah stood in front of the idol. Far taller than the king it was, he was like a child in front of it. He did not speak. Josiah did not need to see the horror. He knew it from his nightmares, where it walked and said his name. His guards held their breath. There was no denying the feeling. Malice went out from the stone, but inside the malice, a promise. Serve me, it said. Feed me, and I will protect you. Defy me, and learn how I devour. The guards lowered their swords. They were caught like gnats in the allure of the thing. They had underestimated the power of the place, of the spirit. Who dared lay a hand on a god? Then a low voice answered. I know you, it said, and at its sound the heads of the guards cleared somewhat. I know you, fiend. The guards looked up with wonder. Josiah spoke to the idol. I saw you on the face of my father and in the images of his father. I smelled you in the stench of fire. I feared you, he said. There was a long silence then, and the enchantment, like fog, pressed back on the veil. Josiah spoke again. I do not now, he said, and the tremor left his voice. What did you think? That having escaped you, I would return to be your slave? He paused. I am Yoshiyahu, he said, and touched his chest in a gesture of defiance. Yoshiyahu, my fortress is Yahweh. Yahweh, he said again. I have chosen. Lay a hand on his throne if you can. The guards looked up. Josiah lifted his hammer. He swung, and a wind was in the swing, and he struck the face off the god. He desecrated Topheth, the scriptures say, which was in the valley of the children of fire. He broke the idol to dust, and the dust even he scattered. Never again could anyone sacrifice their children there. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you intervene. You intervene even in the darkest places. You intervene. We're going to pray a little bit together at the end, but playing the research that went into this. How long have you been at this? I researched for this book for about four years. It started, you can get really swept away. And it started because I had a question about the Neo-Babylonian Empire that shows up in the book of Daniel. But then you open one book mm. into the sophistication of ancient literature, the brilliance of the ancient worldview. Mm. And it's a slippery slope, I can tell you, into, I was reading... It's kind of an old one now, but it's Ernst Jenny's theological lexicon of the Old Testament because I was trying to wrap my mind around this idol Selim image in Genesis 1. And they said, this is in 1997, I think, is that book. The well-known Babylonian and Canaanite conception of an assembly of the gods is clearly in the background. And they went on. And I stopped and went, the well-known 
Babylonian and Canaanite. Nobody knows this. Well known to whom? (laughs) What is this? What are you talking about? You know, when God says in Genesis 1, let us make humanity in our image, most modern people see the Trinity in consultation with itself. There's a lot in Genesis 1 that points straight at a doctrine of the Trinity, but very few good scholars think that's true because of the way the language works. They see God looking at his host, looking at the angels who he has created, going, as on earth, so in heaven, let's... And he's still the one going to be performing the action. Michael Heiser's line on this is, if you're at a party, you say, let's order pizza. You're inviting people into an experience, but you're still the one who makes the call and pays the money. So it's your action. Genesis 1 is like that. Mm. So I opened it up and started to get pulled deeper and deeper. My thing on this is I'm so glad I found some things really early, which are really helpful, which are look at the history of the church. And there are three big pillars. And I get emails with really great questions, but when people begin, you know, biblical research, I'm going to say most biblical scholars do not believe in the resurrection guys. Okay. So tiny little big problem there. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's true. And most people who believe in a spiritual world are not allegiant to Jesus. So there are these twin poles towards esotericism on the one hand and atheism on the other. But it's not the method that most of the saints that we're emulating have used have gone, let me just use the historical critical method and open the scriptures and see what it, in quotes, really says. I go, pillar one, the testimony of the scriptures. Yep. Pillar two, the consensus of the church across space and time. Pillar number three, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the scriptures and reveals Jesus. And so if you're beginning a study on the book of Revelation and you don't know that Irenaeus wrote quite a bit about the book of Revelation because even in his time, this guy was tutored by Polycarp who was tutored by John. Uh, He needed to kind of, he's such a patient voice, but he's like, if John, you know, who and I got this from people who knew him, had wanted to name the Antichrist, he could well have done that, everyone. By the way, the Antichrist is not in Revelation. Come to my Bible study. I wish I could go. So you have those three. You have the Bible in its ancient context as one of the wonders of divine human collaboration. Understand where this came from. What is that book? How mm. old is it? How is it mm. written? assuming that God filled it. I mean, I have to tell people all the time, the Bible derives its authority from God, not the other way around. And in some of the best, uh, just most brilliant believing scholars of our time say the same thing. Like you and I have had this conversation, dad, at an airport in Alaska, where it's, if there is a God, you can trust the Bible. If not, the Bible's not going to prove. I mean, there are no proofs. It's not the Summa Theologica. There are no proofs for God in the Bible. So do that. Ask God to lead. Consult the rooms of the church. Yeah. Because there's there's a concept called the ecumenical gift exchange. Ecumenicism just means uh, collaboration between the different expressions of Christianity. The gift exchange is us over here and kind of the Protestant wing going, hey, what have you Catholics got? What have you held on to really well? Hey, Orthodox Church, what have you preserved across time that you can hold up? Because we actually have some pretty amazing things here to swap notes on seeing reality through Jesus. Yeah. So I've got a research question for you, Blaine. Mm -hmm. Of all of the immense amount of study and data and books and research that it took to create this. Give me an example of something you discovered that just brought tears to your eyes, like that that went beyond the information, which is rich and which is revealing, where you just felt like God reached into your heart with something that that just caused you to be speechless. Well, so many things. I mean, there's 
you know, Judas Iscariot being named Judas the Dagger Man. There's the complexities of the divine name Yahweh. There's the gates of death at Pan. But when you say what made me cry was looking at the Exodus event and realizing both by a close reading and then by consulting a lot of scholars that it was open to everyone. And we import a modern understanding of how nations work into Exodus. And we said, all biologically related descendants of Abraham left at the Exodus, right? Israel, in quotes, left. And then you have to say, that's not how a nation works. A nation is a group of people who are united through ritual participation and service to a god. And so the offer, which is beautiful at the Exodus, is anyone who wants to come can come. Take the Passover and we're getting out of town. And you see that because it always kind of puzzled me where Phineas of the, you know, the zealot with the spear, Phineas, he's a black African and his name even means black, essentially, you scholars who are listening. Um, And he's called a son of Aaron. So if you have these guys standing side by side, they do not look the same, but he's Aaron's son. Uh, Caleb is a Kenizzite. And if you do a close reading of the tribes who are in Canaan, wait a second, the Canaanites are one of the baddies in Canaan. And he he migrated down into Egypt under certain circumstances and he's a son of Israel. So you, I think I just realized- Egyptians. Oh, lots of Egyptians go. Leave town. Sign up with Yahweh. Sign up with Moses. They say, we're in. We- we want to be free of these false gods, these terrible yes. gods, and we want, to, we want to follow. So that was one of the most moving things for me too, Blaine, in, in your telling of the story in the book. It's like, wait, what? Like the Exodus is this genuine, multiracial, multicultural man, woman, and child. Anybody who wants in on the kingdom gets in. It's just beautiful. Oh, it's so beautiful. So friends, you can get The Paradise King in your own hands on November 15th, two weeks away, only on Amazon because it's a self-published project. But the audio book is there as well. If you want to have Blaine read the book to you. In the meantime, you can go to BlaineEldridge.com and you can download the first chapter right now for free and read it. It's an absolute delight. And I'm just thinking, there are so many people I want to give this to. There are so many people. Let me ask you a few questions. Age appropriate. Like where... I rate this book PG-13. And then I advise, I've already had parents write in who are part of the launch team. Wow, I have a precocious 15-year-old and this is going to blow her mind. I said, I think that she could totally take it. I'd encourage you to read the chorus between Adam and Abraham, which we've shared on this podcast because it's kind of the most mature content. But anyone who you think can handle that content um, can handle this book. The rest. Okay. Okay. So PG-13. All right. Um, And who? Who would you give this book to, Alan? Like you, you were reading through it going, oh, I can't wait to get this to. Right. I would give it to people who have either not been able to put the full story together of God and Eden and then, okay, but now the world today, because it brings an intelligence and a thoughtfulness and a connection in ways that I haven't seen before done and and it pulls you in through story. But as you're reading the story, you start to understand your story more. So I would bring it to people who maybe have had a lot of doubt about scripture, who think more with their head, but can't put it all together Mm. on a heart level. Mm. Because I'll just end by saying like the title itself, The Paradise King, so much of what we've heard about paradise is creation and fall. Nothing about a king and nothing about a future paradise. And so even the title is a promise of the connective tissue that brings people through to see their story in a new way. Mm -hmm. And you? I think one of of the most exciting things, I do have several groups in mind of 
Christians who are feeling the itch for more, like they're missing some of the pieces that make the puzzle fit together. Uh, I think it'll be really great around some die-to-the-wool pagans who may get it faster, actually. Um, But then I have loved giving it in advance to people who are in really hard seasons. Um, You know, the first people who got this book were people who were dying. And it's still my favorite way to go. The story of God has a, a hope in it that can't quite be described. You can experience it, but it is for the suffering uh, who in particular need to see who Jesus is and what his care is like. Yes. So I think if for that person in your world who's in the midst of a pretty hard season, um, it might be really helpful. Yeah. Okay. Um, We don't like Halloween here at Wild at Heart. We don't think it's great and groovy and fun and silly. Uh, it's it's a cooperation with darkness, folks. There's just tons of witchcraft and darkness in the world today. The, all those ancient spirits are still trying to do their thing, by the way. Some of them have been judged, and we are actively, personally judging many of them from our kingdoms. But I just want to read Colossians again uh, that you quoted, Blaine, and then pray together, because this is so powerful. It says, in Christ... I'm reading Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. In Christ, who is the real paradise king or the ultimate paradise king, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. All these ancient spirits is what that's referring to. And it says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned it, uh, condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, all these ancient horrible spirits that are ravaging the human race today, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That is real. You have to apply it, folks. It it exists. That victory exists, but you've got to bring it to bear in your kingdom. So, Lord Jesus, in this week, so much heartache in the world, so much darkness, we bring the victory of the blood and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ over the doorposts of our households, over our homes and families this week, disarming all the forces of darkness that are set against us. Lord, your glory and your love and your kingdom to fill our homes, families, households, kingdoms this very week, this very week. And we pray for a mighty revealing of Jesus through the Paradise King. In Jesus' name, amen.